Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. The following program is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and content of a violent and sexual nature, which may not be appropriate for everyone. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. If it's the darkness you seek, you won't be disappointed. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's time for our appointment. In this place, there is no sun, and nightmares do come true. Here, instead of shadow falling, the shadows follow you. Consider getting comfortable before the air grows colder. Prepare yourself, if you dare. Come, inch a little closer. If darkness is what you're after, seek no more your searches through. You haven't found the darkness, traveler. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 21. I'm your host... Jason Hill, and I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. You might want to brace yourself for this one, listener, because tonight, authors Laird Baron and Soren Narnia are taking us beyond known worlds, deep into the blank portions of the map, 
to the strange places beyond the nightmare frontier. But keep your wits about you, because here there be dragons. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies and nightmares come to life, where those who seek the darkness need look no further. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Our first story tonight comes from that dark master of audio horror, Sauron Narnia, who will take us beyond the stars and further still. From author Sauron Narnia, I give you... Lake. My name is Major Kensing Colby. On December 2nd, 2056, I sat out alone from the German space station air guys in a gray-class single-seat locator, headed toward the Bessarabia sector to complete a brief recovery mission on Teltron. Two weeks earlier, Ellen Hernandez had died there when her spacesuit was torn by a flying shard of irradiated coolant released by an explosion on one of Russia's nuclear-powered satellites. The other members of her crew had had to take off for their own safety from the freak storm, and her body hadn't been recovered yet. That was to be my job. Teltrin was a desert void that had aggravated both DLR and NASA for years now, with its maddening and conflicting soil evidence of a substantial water source that was probably never going to be found. Ellen Hernandez had been collecting even more samples when the coolant storm killed her. All that was left now was the slow pulse of the positioning chip embedded in her left boot heel. It was this that I followed all the way down to the vast, arid surface. It was almost entirely an instrument landing. I kicked up so much toxic soil as I descended that too much got sucked into both main engines and played hell with the craft's heating core. But this was only a minor annoyance. It was a relatively smooth operation. When I was firmly down, I revved up the beacon lights and napped for the ten minutes they took to gain full power, turning each one on to flood the surrounding square mile with pale, sickly illumination produced an impressively loud series of metallic clanking sounds inside the craft, twelve in all. Then, there was just the depressing silence that cloaked Teltrin and everything else out in the deep reaches of space. Teltrin's atmosphere of nitrogen, argon, and belclarium discolored the white light of the beacons into a muddy, rusty red, 
I saw a flat, empty plane through the forward window, same to the rear. But I had calculated my position quite well, and on monitor 8 I could see a good, clean image of the area around the craft. Helen Hernandez's body was there, face up on the plane. The image was so clear I could see where her suit and her body had been torn, right at her waist, on the left side. A big tear, too. Bloody. The shard of coolant that had done it might have been traveling at 200 miles per hour, or more. I saw no actual coolant debris anywhere. It was long gone by now. Well past Eldrinda, probably. I had a full twenty hours or so before the atmosphere began to freeze the ignition seams inside the engines, so I took the time to eat something before I headed out. After that, I began the process of donning and securing my suit and prepping the cart that would carry Hernandez back to the craft. It was not quite noon, airgaze time, when I checked in with the station and then went through the unlock sequence and opened the hatch to allow me onto the surface of Teltrin. Never before had I been completely alone on a mess such as this, though I had been trained for it. The silence and the darkness could be psychologically damaging if you weren't prepared for it. Human beings are not wired to be plunged into such isolation. At any time, I could open communications with the air guys by merely speaking aloud inside my helmet. But since they had me hitched to a bio-track, I felt no need. The cart followed me as I stepped onto the planet's thin soil and into that bath of red light. It was only a five-minute walk to the body. The fact that I had not known Ellen Hernandez saved me from the furor of emotion that had stricken a few of my colleagues upon the air guys. To me, she was just an errand. When I reached her, I crouched down and removed the tracker from her boot so Ron Railsberg could look at the data and maybe learn a tiny bit more about how quickly she died. I could see one side of her face through her faceplate. Her left eye was open. I looked away, off at the incredibly tiny pinpricks of stars. I had never actually touched a corpse before. I was about to start adjusting the car to automatically scoop her up when one of the beacon lights died, not unexpectedly, changing the nature of the glow around me ever so subtly. But that was enough to plunge that feeling into me, like an ice pick. That feeling of being impossibly far from any living presence, and less than a speck of helpless breath and being. It was like waking up in a coffin, and it only lasted an instant before up went the mental wall that blocked out the scary reality of the moment. I wasn't about to freeze up or panic like some did during the sensory deprivation tests back at Langley. I noticed something in the distance. At the very, very edge of the beacon's light's reach. The point where that red glow dissolved into nothingness. At first, it looked to me like the edge of a rock formation. An anomaly on the otherwise blank landscape. We knew that such formations were fairly common, 
The unusual shape of some of them was what gave some of us hope of a water source. But, as my vision adjusted, I realized it was not a rock formation. Not at all. I walked past the corpse toward the place where the light faded to black. I stopped twenty yards later and just stood and stared. What I was looking at was the back of a school bus. Yes, a traditional school bus facing away from me. Each step brought me more detail. Soon enough, I could read the Colorado license plate. A number on the rear emergency door marked the bus. Bus number 68. The front half was totally in the dark. I don't remember how long I stood there before I went forward into that patch of black emptiness. I did not question the reality of what I was seeing, not for a moment. Whether it was real or illusion, or imagined, didn't enter into my course of action. I reached my left hand out and felt for the side of the bus with my glove. With my right, I reached up to the trip that would disconnect any incoming transmissions from the air guys. I wanted the silence now, and this cut off even the tiny static hum of the open channel. I soon came to an obstruction. The bus's accordion door was open. I ran my glove over the glass and positioned myself where the steps would lead me up and in, but it was a long time before I climbed them. You see, never before had the door been open. Not twelve years ago, when the bus had first appeared to me in my hometown of St. Augustine, and not four when I'd followed it at two in the morning to an open field, after it had actually passed me on Bailey Ridge Road, seventy miles outside Denver. My will to approach it as it sat in the field had failed me badly that night, bad enough to send me to the closest bar I could find where I drank myself into oblivion. The open door told me this would be the end of it. They finally wanted me aboard, and I was obliged to obey. I had just enough willpower to look back toward my craft once more, and even if I'd had the strength to go towards it, I couldn't anyway. Because Ellen Hernandez was now standing on the spot where she'd lain, standing there, as if to keep me from going back. She had removed her helmet. The Belclarium had sucked all of the moisture from her flesh, so her face, what I could see of it at that distance, looked cracked all over, and her eyes had vanished into their sockets. Most of her hair had fallen out. Her legs were covered in blood. It was an effort in that atmosphere just to lift each leg high enough to maneuver into the tight space at the bus's entry point. The bulk of my suit rushed on what felt like handrails on either side of me, 
So dark was it that I would not have been able to see them had I pressed my face to them. I was utterly blind and deaf. But then, when I turned my body to the left upon ascending two steps, the red glow of the distant beacon lights showed me the silhouette of several heads of human beings sitting on the bus's seats. Fourteen of them there were. They did not move. Many of the seats were empty. They wanted me to be among them. It was time. I took a few steps forward. The two silhouettes at the back of the bus were clearest. The light brushed sides of their faces. I sensed rather than saw a head turn slightly to watch me pass. I steadied myself by touching the backs of the seats. A few feet from the end of the aisle, I maneuvered clumsily onto one of them. I sat towards the edge, facing the front. Across the aisle were the obsidian outlines of two people, who I felt were staring at me, eyes invisible. Had they reached out to touch me, I would of course have gone mad. I was twenty years old when I caused the accident that took all of their lives, and the drivers, who hadn't been much older than I was. A quarter of a century ago now, it had been a day trip for them, an outing from the senior center on Ronstick Road where they passed their quiet days. None was under seventy years old. I'd cut the bus off in my Honda as I was trying to pass a slow-moving sedan in the rain. It had all happened in an instant. I never saw the bus swerve and then overcompensate, sending it onto the shoulder and then across the opposing lane toward a drop of forty feet beyond a rusty guardrail. I had driven on, assuming I had merely caused a bit of a jolt. It was only later that I learned what had become of them. Their day trip to Lake Edmund had been the last of their lives. I never told anyone, anyone, what had happened. I'd even managed to pass NASA's psych evals, maybe because it took years of the guilt to sink in so deeply that it never left. The Kensing Colby before that day and the one after were two very different human beings. But this wasn't enough for the people on the school bus. They wanted to stretch my suffering out across the decades. After five minutes, maybe ten, of sitting there, insensate and numb, I felt we were moving. The bus had begun to roll forward. We were going somewhere. I closed my eyes and leaned back against my seat. It couldn't properly be called terror, what I was feeling. Instead, my conscious mind had finally detached from the desire for self-preservation entirely. I lost all awareness at one point and fell into a dreamless abyss, much like they told me hypersleep would be like. When I awoke, nothing had changed except that 
Through the front window of the bus, I could see a deep band of blue in the sky, telling me the impossible, that we had traversed thousands of miles of dead terrain and were on the other side of Teltrin now. That vast blue band brought out the silhouette of those sitting in front of me, as well as the driver, who kept both hands assuredly on the wheel as we rolled forward at fifteen or twenty miles per hour. Time spun out. Once every few hours we went past a rock formation, a strange slope that broke up the void. At its brightest, the blue band brought enough light into the bus that I could see my gloves. And finally, some small details of the faces of the old couple sitting across the aisle from me. Their eyes were riveted directly forward, their haggard faces without expression or expectation. And so we drove, and drive even now, ceaselessly, across Teltrin. I suppose time has never actually moved, and no one will be coming down from the air guys to rescue me. Ever. Sometimes the total darkness returns completely for what feels like days at a time. Sometimes the light is there. I see new features in the landscape through the windows. But while the scientists of the air guys still have a dim hope of finding a water source here, those on the bus will never find the one they saw 26 years ago. Twice the bus has stopped entirely, and I could just make out the driver poring over a road map, as if he had lost his way perhaps growing more and more frustrated about Lake Edmund's whereabouts, not understanding why reaching it is impossible. I intend to meet my fate honorably and have no intention of ever rising from my seat. I'll wait for as long as it takes for some final act to kill me mercifully, or at least give me a glimpse of a future beyond space, time, and torment. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. 
and we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to Lake, my author, Sauron Nornia. I guess no matter how far or fast you run, the dead will always follow. Second story intro. Get ready, listeners, and I do recommend a safe place for hearing our next tale, because let me tell you, things are about to get very weird. Without further ado, from author Laird Barron, I give you Ode to Jode the Toad. Interesting times came to the city of many names, namely the old capital. King Minji's bastard son, Larry, mounted the throne of the second Friday of the Month of the Dead, nine days of state mourning after the old king succumbed to advanced years and white-hot iron shoved up his ass. Long live the king. Sunday evening, a buxom maid tended the royal instrument while two of her cohorts pinned young Larry's skinny arms. A fourth sawed off his head. His majesty should have been using it more assiduously. Long live the king. Monday afternoon witnessed a blaze of trumpets and the flourish of banners to commemorate the ascension of King Richard Creeley IV to the Lion Throne. Fresh graffiti in Bull Cutter Alley declared, Dick is king. Something few would argue against. Except for whomever had scribbled off with his head and kick against the pricks. Two figures lurked at the far end of the alley, a popular rendezvous for nefarious sorts. A short man, and a tall, toadish, something other than man, at least a broad axe haft wide. These worthies regarded the piss wall and its timely message. The major dealt with, the small one said to the wall. Sneaky Bob wore a ragged cloak and boots, but a fancy doublet and hose beneath. He'd come directly from his apartments above one of the city's finer brothels, which, not coincidentally, had provided the maids who ushered King Larry into the underworld. How dealt is dealt, Walter Neck said. Words emerge from the waddles of his throat as a rusty blade grinds forth from its sheath. As a consequence, while he often spoke at length, he seldom raised his voice and seldom needed to do so. Bought a bit of bay, chained to an anchor, Sneaky Bob said. Cut him and dumped him over the side myself. His smirk projected the idea that he didn't favor women, despite, or because of, his close association with them. This is good to hear. Nick's physiognomy appeared toadish because he was in fact an ur-toad, which meant he was a venerable exemplar of toad kind, yet infinitely more. The gods had gifted Ur, supreme among animals, with speech and reasoning, 
and empathy toward humanity that did not necessarily equal love. Possessed of the relative mass of a grizzly bear, Neck moved slowly and ponderously, except for those moments when he didn't. He favored a moldering black coyote pelt, skin from Prowl, king of the coyotes, and horrid cork boots of amphibian leather, though he required neither furs nor boots. He also carried a notched kopesh forged from a petrified slab of wood. Equally unnecessary, unless he wished to fell a small tree or quarter an elk, which he sometimes did. At the moment, he regarded his human companion and waited with patience honed from eons of cautious observance. Ur were as savage as any beast. Humans were masters of treachery. One could never be too safe around a man, especially a man who despised his fellows. Many hands made light work of a coup d'etat. Sneaky Bob's mitts had gotten particularly dirty. He'd arranged the most intimate details of the royal assassination and several others that followed. High Lords decreed the time and place. Bob had selected who and how. Meanwhile, Walter Neck's task in the grand scheme of political reorganization was to resolve delicate personal matters, mainly overseeing the severance of certain employees. Bob was the last name on Neck's list. I pray the Seneschal is satisfied. Sneaky Bob referred to the king's right-hand hatchet man, Seneschal Geld. The Seneschal owed Sneaky Bob a knapsack of golden lions for services rendered, which meant, as the Seneschal's agent in this matter, Neck owed Sneaky Bob a knapsack of golden lions. Forebodingly, there was neither knapsack nor gold on Neck's person. The kingdom is grateful for your sacrifice. The Urtoad's thin lipped smile broadened. He rotated his unnervingly prodigious cranium to orient upon his tiny compatriot. "'Twas nothing," Sneaky Bob said, between one breath and the next. He was nothing. Come rosy-nippled dawn, Neck expelled shreds of a raggedy cloak, fancy doublet, and hose into the gutter of Eyeball Passage. This alley bored into the mountain's spine. The mountain carried the city upon its back. Stalactites oozed evil rainwater. Friezes depicted leering amphibian horrors, exceedingly toad-like, that once dwelt below. Primitive tribes of men carved them, and worse. Wind gusted through the alley. Dead leaves from the royal park whirled around his shoulders and added their number to the bed of mulch and slime and fossilized skeletons of animals and men. He waddled forth to get drunk at a tavern and cogitate upon what he suspected to be his own imminent doom. The Jackdaw Tavern was one of a baker's dozen similarly designated establishments scattered around the old capital. This being the month of the dead, and thus against custom to sally forth Sand's costume, the proprietor assumed Neck's awful visage to be an artfully crafted mask. Neck rented a cell on the second floor. He licked a vat of curds and pleasured himself nestletorily. The curds were fermented from the tainted blood milk of rats that dwelt at the sewers. The rats surfaced at night to steal garbage and strip inebriated vagrants to the bone. 
Neck was old as the Ur measure such things, perhaps old as rocks and trees measure such things. He recalled but fragments of his voluminous history. Had his existence always been so squalid? He committed an array of dirty deeds for meager pay, hatchet jobs, murder, mayhem, skullduggery, prostitution. He made a terrible prostitute. His bitter's organ followed its own star, and Neck was down to mate whenever the opportunity presented itself. Alas, altering sex taxed the Ur-toad, and he usually went into hibernation upon accomplishing the deed. He squatted before a minor altar to Jode, patron deity of toads great and small, and other less savory creatures of the bogs and swamps. This was a wooden effigy, nothing akin to the colossal mural in the Hall of Doom that depicted insatiable Jode as a behemoth, its tongue drooling down to the dirt, scores of men caught fast in its barbs like flies dying in amber. Not a popular deity, to be sure. Hours burned away as next stoically awaited word from Seneschal Geld as per his instructions. The two had met in the flesh but once. Many years gone by when the Seneschal swam with the little pollywogs at the court of good King Minji. Oh, how times had changed. A man of Geld's current status did not treat personally with mercenary scum, lest it be by dead of night and in the presence of numerous heavily armed guards. Therefore, Neck anticipated contact with a trusted emissary of the Seneschal, i.e., a professional murderer. That's how the Great Web and its functionaries worked. One man to arrange assassinations, and then to murder the assassins. Another man to liquidate the first fellow, and a third to take care of him. Where would it all end? With a knock on the door and an envenomed dagger stabbed through his slow-beating heart, is what Neck suspected. Seneschal Geld preferred loose threads to be snipped. The powerful always did. Shadows of clouds moved against the window. The gray gloom of his niche blackened at the edges and curled inward until only the last trace of light glimmered in the pitiless rhinestone eyes of the idol. Where will it end indeed? The altar of Jode whispered from many directions at once. That voice, like the creak of sun-whitened leather, sounded as familiar as Neck's own. For you, it ends in a pot of bubbling oil and seasonal spices, unless divine providence intervenes. Have you been keen? Have you said your prayers? I haven't heard from you since that sticky incident with the Croatoans. Neck had been neither keen nor faithful. The only prayers he'd attended were those of his victims, who occasionally babbled for mercy before their pitiable souls were snatched into the underworld. He also attended the gurgling of his bowels, where damned souls occasionally simmered and stewed. You've done it now... The oppression of Minji had grown intolerable. Neck quoted the sentiment of nobles and peasants who chafed under the old king's increasingly burdensome yoke. But why now, small fry? May as well ask why a man peels a scab. It's an impulse. You're no man. Yet 
Here I squat in his rude habitation, observing his customs, digesting his humor and habit, no less. Thanks to your meddling, the kingdoms of men shall endure naught but woe. Dick will see to it. Verily, King Dick represented an existential threat to peasants and paupers everywhere his scabrous hand extended. Cruel beyond the usual measure, even for a mortal tyrant, who were forced to pack every conceivable inequity into their flea-span lives, the king would happily usher in a new dark age of fire and destruction and political whoredom. You're quite welcome, Nick said drunk on the vile curds and his own rank fatalism. Consider it a favor. Down with the primates, eh? Don't presume to do me any favors. Perhaps you bear these primates enmity. I rather enjoy their antics. Jode's altar emanated a suggestive slurp. Easy for a god older than the mountains to adopt a sanguine view. It had presided when creation was a soupy mess that spanned pole to pole. It had known worms and mollusks and trilobites as supplicants. It would persist for eons after other life forms gave way to cockroaches scurrying beneath the reddening sun. Meanwhile, the blight known as mankind spread across the countenance of the earth, virulent as mold to the meat of an overripe peach. Men slew those who came before or drove them into the low caverns where neither celestial light nor rain were ever felt. The Ur, such as Nick, risked much to walk abroad. His mostly extinct kind did so only by the forbearance of lords of men. Ur perforce served human princes and kings as advisors and executioners, and, alas, toadies. You are despised, it is true, the wooden god said. Those who know their history fear you. Those who know you fear you. Hate you. Even Geld. Especially Geld. Especially Dick. If they only knew how little they know, Nick said to the altar, to himself. A coal ignited in his belly. Dull and dim, then rapidly brightening to the incandescent heat of a torturer's best iron. His eyes teared, and for the first time in epics, he heard the north wind sighing through the reeds of his distant home estuary. He smelled the brine of tidal water, and he smelled green birch shit. The altar fattened on liquid darkness and his misery. Long had Neck harbored greedy phantoms of inconsolable yearning and pitiless regret. Long and longer had he suffered guilt and self-reproach like perpetual festering wounds. When you were voiding your bowels and eyeballed passage this lovely morn, did you perchance hearken the clink of a mostly dissolved vial as it vented from your nether port and rolled into the gutter? I fancy Bob carried a bottle of scent. My innards smell quite pleasant, I trow. Bob did not carry a bottle of scent. Bob carried a vial of rare and deadly poison called a sanguine dream-eater. 
several drops of which he intended to spice your courage at the first chance. Few natural poisons or venoms upon the god's good earth could affect the constitution of iron-gutted neck. He was, so far as he had reason to believe by dint of brutal experience, immune to the worst effects of every foul, toxic material devised by man or nature, except ennui. Indeed, when aroused he exuded a toxic slime capable of inducing a hypnogenic state, nausea, and death. Victims reported an orgy of phantasmal imagery prior to their demise. Who would provide Bob such a rare potion for fell purpose? Someone who wishes to send you home. Someone wise enough to know you don't poison an Urtoad. Nay, the Urtoad. You poison reality itself. The ultimate trip. My guess? A king, or his seneschal? It was a rhetorical question. Neck understood precisely what had befallen him. He'd been commanded to destroy Sneaky Bob and leave no trace. The seneschal, knowing full well the manner in which Neck typically essayed the disappearance of his victims, would snip two loose ends for the price of one. Of vivid hallucinations, the... First stage? Neck waved his paw and his claws briefly multiplied. Time is a ring. You will meet the terrible shadow on high once more. I am sorry it has come to this. That makes two of us. Tell me what I must do, oh hopping god. Though it sounded familiar, Neck couldn't remember the precise connotation of the terrible shadow on high... The phrase smacked of mystical gobbledygook, used to frighten peasants. Mighty Jode? Hello? The altar spoke no more, although a strong reek of bog remained in the garret. Neck vomited a steaming pile of curds. He lighted a candle and blearily contemplated the mess with the concentration of a haruspex. A distant screech resounded, and again closer. Green light seeped through the window. Shadows dissolved. The gaseous, swampy stench thickened, and the ceiling boards creaked. He looked up, into the annihilating center of the universe. A plethora of horrors crept forth to mingle with gentle folk during the month of the dead, Costumes, grease paint, glamour, and expectations concealed the true nature of these entities. First, Neck had entered the Jackdaw Tavern, his hideous form unremarked upon by neither proprietor nor patrons. Some time later, five men of the flat affect arrived, accompanied by a young woman. The men were likewise treated with affable diffidence, despite their most unwholesome physiognomies. Common folks scarcely recognized them for what they truly were, particularly in broad daylight. The white ones tended to lurk at the twilight margins, given to haunting lakeside cabins, abandoned asylums, and rural knolls popular with lust-crazed teenagers. None could authoritatively deride the origin of these creatures. Rumors abounded, 
They had died, as mortal men usually do, then were reassembled and resurrected by the gods of death. Or they were mortal men, perfectly alive, but enslaved by enchanted masks. Or they were an immortal servitor species, marooned when their star-faring ship crashed on Earth and now emerged from crevices at the bidding of eminent black magicians, such as Julie V, Satan's own bitch, and John Foote, erstwhile warlock to the Imperial Court. Whatever the truth of their provenance, men of the flat affect, or white ones, resembled typical men, except for visages sickly pale as clabbered milk an unnerving rictus and shambling gait that covered more ground than an untutored observer might warrant. The Pale Society, as scholars designated their plurality, was divided between the ecstatics, whose evil grins permanently curved unto their ears, and the stoics, who were blank and cold as the very snows. Men of the flat affect spoke solely to lure victims from sanctuary and into darkness. They possessed no scrutable motivations, save a love of sadism and murder. This cruelty consisted of three ecstatics and two stoics, each yoked in servitude to the aforementioned young woman, Delia Labrador. Delia wore a woolen cloak and a gemstone-encrusted domino mask. Her lips were blackened with ash. She sat at a table near the hearth, her scaly sandals propped most cavalierly. The white ones loomed around her, their eyes gleaming with dispassionate malice. Delia inquired of the proprietor whether he'd seen anyone interesting. She sought a man of superior bulk and rude countenance, a man who smelled of alkaline and the blood caked on his boots. The proprietor pointed directly overhead and confessed he'd rented a cell to precisely such an enormous brute positively frightening, positively feculent. Did this gentleman perchance wear the mask and garb of Jode the inimical, dread god of toads and a thousand slithering beasts? Uh, as you say, lass, I am infinitely more experienced than these rosy cheeks suggest, she said. Your bearing is that of a soldier, a footman from the minor tarot, Many days loafing and a few hogsheads a beer ago, yeah. Grace me with a soldier's appraisal. What did you make of your squatty guest? Is he a warrior? Would he strike fear in your heart on a field of battle? Uh, perhaps, ma'am, as a backstabbing scout. He's awful light-footed for a man of his bulk. Yeah, come to think of it, he trod softly as a sloven's own shadow. Thank you, innkeeper. Sleep well, and dream a red dream of butchery in the name of your old king, she smiled. Oh, and my apologies for the once and future mess. The proprietor's gaze shifted from the girl to her entourage and back again. He sidled away in the manner of a fighting crab. Delia nodded to the Stoics, who immediately lurched in tandem up the rickety stairs. White ones typically preambulated as if directed by an amateur puppeteer's hand. She massaged her temples and waited the inevitable outcry. This was the essence of her professional existence. Auguries and dousing to track prey, the casting of wards and charms, 
the deployment of her killers. Support where necessary, although the white ones tended to be a fire and forget proposition. Sick them upon a victim and profit. She'd received the commission to eradicate Neck the Violator earlier that morning via a dead letter drop. The commission, labeled an emergency, did not enumerate Neck's offenses, many of which were common knowledge to the denizens of the city's underworld, or whom longed for his death. It would have required ten men and a boy to tote such a scroll. Nor did Delia give a rotten fig. Neck represented an exorbitantly lucrative contract, and nothing more. Her beasts were fearsome, but few living creatures could withstand the attentions of the White Ones. The cruelty she'd wrought was exceptionally formidable, and would make short work of the Toad, his reputation notwithstanding. For an exquisitely pregnant interval, nothing perceptible happened upstairs. Then, blood welled from ceiling planks, and dripped onto the table, spattering her sandals. The ecstatics cocked their heads and regarded this phenomenon with intense diffidence. Time passed and more blood dripped, but the Stoics did not return. We'd best see what's keeping your brethren, Delia said with a strained nonchalance. In an abundance of caution, she donned three extra murder rings, each set with a death's head gemstone attuned to a particular medium of slaughter. These stones complemented the setting of her bejeweled belt and the master death's head. Power swelled in her middle. Power crackled in her delicate fists. The servitors preceded her, naturally. Each of them was armed with a skinning knife, cleaver, or mallet. Rusty, jagged, and lethal. Once, at least seventy or eighty years ago, a wealthy, albeit naive, patron inquired how a nice girl like Delia became a black magician. She lacked the marks of discernment as popularized in literature. She wasn't a hag, nor a begoteed warlock. Her supple, rosy flesh was unscarified. Neither of her shapely angles were attached to a hoof. Delia said, A toad resided in our family garden. Beastly, malevolent creature. It ate sparrows that flew too near. I was a child and believed in the fairy tale of kissing frogs as a method to disenchant cursed princes. Much too late did I recall that the tale made no mention of toads. Our tongues intertwined and its viscid bile burned my core. Light and purity were seared to crisps. The rest is the rest. That same patron then asked how she'd fallen in with the men of the flat affect. Simple. A cruelty of their ilk raped and murdered me, unaware that this violation transpired according to my own design. As such matters predictably follow, I arose by a true resurrection, and now own their souls forevermore. The inquisitive patron made no further inquiries. Ascending the stairs these many years later, she could be forgiven in indulging a morbid notion that her story had come full circle. The bitter taste in her mouth sharpened, and a thread of drool unraveled along her chin. The fingernails of her left hand blackened as the murder ring sparked and sizzled.
Upstairs, a short, narrow passage extended too far and at a peculiar, canted angle, as though Delia and her entourage had entered the hold of a foundering ship. She glanced over her shoulder. The stairwell fumed with an aqueous green glow. Her breath caught. Her reactions lagged heartbeats behind the languid unfolding of events. She experienced variations of this nightmare on numerous occasions. A pitiful insect, trapped in a globe of stiffening amber, while a scarcely imaginable doom approached to snuff her life. The second door on the left was ajar, its opening brimmed with unnatural darkness. Stars and planets and capes of celestial dust could have swooped through this slice of void, so deep, dark, and cold. No glints of stellar fire winked from within, however. Delia had studied eldritch portals in the eleven grimoires of revulsion, compulsion, and repulsion. Such ruptures contravened physical laws of material reality and spanned immense distances as causeways between worlds, between galaxies. Some wormholes cored even farther, crossing into the great dark where flesh and brain represented provender for the sleeping dread. In either case, to cross the threshold was to court severe peril. The ecstatics flew off their feet and into the void. Minnows, yanked by the hook and line of a cosmic fisherman. She initiated a sign of greater warding. Too little, too late. A terrible force like constricting iron bands crushed her arms against her sides and shot her at velocity into the bottomless pit. Frigid wind shrilled. Her tears froze against her cheeks. She comforted herself with mantra, I have known death and resurrection. And she fell, blinded in the darkness. I have supped the black milk of the Gorgon and uttered her profane ulations. And she fell. I have bent the will of the White Ones to my own. And she fell. Julie V kissed my sandal. And she fell. John Foote is my bitch. And she fell. Delia had memorized 23 greater and 39 minor signs of celestial malice. Six names of demon kings quivered the tip of her tongue. None of these could save her for she sensed her patrons were beyond communion. Consumed with mindless fear, she could utter naught but an inchoate cry. The sensation of plummeting ceased, instantly, seamlessly. She caught her balance, opened her eyes, and beheld the bland confines of a typical inn-chamber, albeit marred by a pool of coagulating blood and the missing street-side wall which gave way to a panorama of slimy, towering mandrake and giant ferns, instead of shit-filled gutters and shit-spattered buildings. Mist oozed over beds of variegated moss. Birds warbled and chattered. Insects whirred in endless, stinging hunger. They clouded the surface of a sluggish river. She inhaled the rank humidity, tasting ancient bark and hints of spoilage. Here was a verdant hell of hermit philosophers, a reeking, fecund everglade, primeval as the fang of a dinosaur. This everglade did not reside in any civilized region of the Empire. 
Civilization, so-called, was loath to suffer the existence of a man-eating garden within its confines. She beheld no sign of her erstwhile companions who might protect her against lurking predatory fauna. Had they dissolved during transit? Or, scant difference, vanished into the gullet of a prehistoric reptile. Whence the sticky pool of blood? Thinking more clearly by the moment, she decided that moving away from the scene might be prudent, as scavengers and carnivores alike were certain to converge. Delia walked and walked parallel to the river, traversing hummocks and half-submerged logs, avoiding quicksand and fitted pools swarming with sickeningly large mosquitoes. The fate of her entourage became apparent by and by. She spied the mangled corpse of a stoic dangling from the boughs of a mangrove tree. A crocodile lazily chomped on the smirking remains of an ecstatic. Bits of the others lay scattered from hell to breakfast. Likely sufficient disparate pieces to reassemble her slaves into grisly patchworks given a fortnight or so. Their kind was nigh indestructible, although they could be severely inconvenienced by the usual methods. Unlike the white ones, she would not regenerate if reduced to a spool of guts and remnant fingers. She moved a trifle faster. The white disk of a sun hung motionless behind its veil of clouds. Reality distorted here. Time moved as slowly as the blood within the terrible lizards who drowsed in the reeds. In due course she emerged to behold a delta. Brackish water slopped near her toes. The water curved away into a milky haze, its expanse doppled by the breeze. Several crocodiles, more enormous than the specimen who'd eaten her death slave, lazed upon the delta, bloated logs decorating the tidal grounds of a ruined mansion. Neck has imbibed a dose of sanguine dream-eater. She picked a gnat from her teeth with a knife-like thumbnail. That is the only explanation. It is also the worst explanation. Where she'd landed was no more important than when. Dream Eater came in a dozen flavors, each more esoteric than the last. All varieties were capable of damaging the imbiber and his or her personal reality. But as a bonus effect, Sanguine Dream Eater scorched holes in the very fabric of space and time as it existed within the dreamer. Thus, the wormhole and his prehistoric jungle destination. She'd gone backward in time, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of years. The poison's nature also predicated a dreadful intimacy. The surroundings would undoubtedly bear personal relevance to Neck. No one ever truly escaped his or her own provenance. The great toad spawned here, she said. Eons gone by. He frolicked in this stew as a merry pollywog, not a twatting care in the world. Thanks to his carnivorous predilections, here I tarry. Do you not recognize your own home? She snapped her head around and saw nothing but tall grass. Either her inner demons whispered in a chorus, or the dark power spoke to her on the wind. She regarded the ruins and their guardian lizards. Many years had passed, and the mansion's dereliction was severe, so she but slowly twigged the voice's insinuation that this was her childhood abode. 
You penetrated the membrane, her inner demon said. Your blood, your marrow, your animating force commingled with water necks effluvium. And not for the first time. Behold his paradise and purgatory, for it is your very own. Enough! Delia made a ward against malignant genius loci and supernatural possession and silenced the voice. She slashed a thick sapling with her flinty nails, and it toppled. She forged the narrow delta channel, probing ahead with her impromptu staff. The nearest albino crocodile caught wind of her scent and hastily flopped into the water. Such a luxurious mansion in its heyday. She wandered its marshy halls, ceiling open to the heavens. Father had been a moderately wealthy freeman, He and mother protested the policies of someone a bit too high up on the food chain, organized a peasant rebellion, really a glorified work slowdown, and were branded dissident traitors for their pains. Father lost his estate prior to his execution. The aggrieved nobility shipped mother north as a trained slave. She placed Delia in the care of a distant relative, her final desperate act. The relative... A strange, bloody-minded woman was an occultist who'd endured the tutelage of several grand masters and was found wanting. However, the occultist recognized Delia's aptitude regarding the dark arts, and the child's course was set. And now? Walter Neck sprawled in the backyard where a magnificently tended garden had rioted into a fetid jungle. He lay as still as the dead, his left paw locked onto the throat of a stoic. Splinters of bone protruded from the stoic's limbs. Its staring wet eyes swam with gnats. Mindlessly loyal to the bitter end, it had expired pursuing her quarry. Delia could have revived her minion with a finger snap, although the result might have proved more interesting had the Ur swallowed her pet. She poised to make the gesture and utter the fateful syllables. Neck coughed. His grotesque bulk shuddered. He pushed the corpse aside and laboriously rolled to his knees. That brought him and Delia to approximately the same height. So, we meet again, she said. You look terrible. He glared at her. (laughs) Says the goth chick with a lazy eye and bad makeup. His breath was a pungent cocktail of half-digested carrion, hot, awful, and poison. And that voice. We can't all be silver-tongued devils like Rabbit Abbott. He knew she was right. It pained him nonetheless. Rabbit Abbott isn't a name I recall. Exactly. And you've never crossed my path either. I'd remember your attitude. As a young toad, you dwelt near the foot of a yon vine-entangled fountain. She retreated several steps and opened her hand. I held you in my palm. Hate to be the bearer of ill tidings, crazy lady. I haven't been a young anything since the bold mountains were pointy and the east and west continents were a vast, swampy plate. We kissed. It did not end well. 
If you can't discern the difference between a frog and a toad, you were doomed at the outset. He climbed upright. His shadow fell over her. I'm dying a slow, horrible death via poison. The pain is exacerbated by this tedious conversation. Yes, yes, you swallowed a dose of sanguine dream eater, she said. I suspect that Mr. or Mrs. X became anxious, fearing a delayed reaction meant you'd either avoided the poison or were immune. He or she sent me to finish the job. Mr. X. Oh, no mystery in that regard. Seneschal Geld decided to terminate my services now that the royal coup is accomplished. That asshole? I wondered who could afford the extravagance of SDE. There are seven doses left in existence. Oh, um, six doses. You intend to come at me, or what? The sun is going to set in a million years, give or take, and I don't want to miss the spectacle. Though he didn't appear to be in any condition to threaten her, Delia maintained a healthy distance as she turned the problem over in her mind. Here we are at a pretty pass. I hesitate to dispatch your miserable soul to the great dark, due to these exigent circumstances. Our fates may be temporarily intertwined. Oh, fortunate me, Neck peered at the sky. Don't take offense when I say that your intentions are the least of my problems. He pointed at a speck that detached from the sun and floated closer. You will soon regret that bit about our intertwined fates. <laughs> Apologies. A hair-raising shriek echoed across the gulf. Her demons returned with a gleeful monologue. Time is a ring. The hole in its heart yawns. It is the crack that runs through everything. It is the bottomless pit that nothing can fill. The great toad is expressed in his myriad iterations, as some believe all men are mere fragments of a singular god. What approaches, she said. He who finally noticed our arrival, the terrible shadow that dwells on high. <laughs> he glanced at her. Heard of him? God of the beasts of the air? Fisher of souls. Fisher of amphibian souls? And also whomever happens to be standing nearby. The speck bridged the gap with astonishing velocity and grew by magnitudes. A monstrously enormous heron surmounted by a hemisphere of glittering shadow astride a second inverted hemisphere of thunderheads. The heron to end all herons descended to the mouth of the Delta. It might have swallowed an elephant. It might have devoured an army mounted upon elephants. Water boiled to vapor with each crashing beat of its wings that cast shadows across the earth and the water and into the forest. Wind battered Neck and Delia, and they were drenched. The heron of herons folded its dripping wings and loomed. Azure head and feathers, crimson-throated, crimson-beaked, midnight black of breast, and eyes of molten gold. 
tall as the trees, its bill parted to emit a frightful shriek that caused lesser birds to pelt against the canopy and the crocodiles to hurl themselves into the reeds, tails whipping madly. One lizard rolled over and floated belly up in the shallows. Delia went to her knees and bowed her head in instinctive supplication. Nick covered his eyes to ward off flying chaff and waited for whatever must come. Oh, fuck me running, the god of Heron said, nasally and dinful. I know you, Toad. I've had you in my throat once upon a time. Oh, that's what your mother... Shut up! Be warted, imbecile. The heron raised his voice and the blast was bonfire hot and rich with blood and righteous bile. Let me recount our history. I speared your feckin' sire with my bill and drank his nasty juices until naught remained but a warty sack. My mate, Agatha, feasted upon the rancid innards of your dame. We romantically gazed into one another's eyes as we gulped the vast ochre strings of eggs that were your embryonic siblings. We gorged ourselves upon the pollywogs who fled in vain beneath the mossy sludge of these ponds. Made it a game of hide-and-seek, in fact. How many regulars could I shish-kebab at once? Loads. But you... You... Foul, poisonous, feculent turd on legs. You, caught in my throat as your glands oozed a hypnagogic poison. Not unlike the sanguine dream eater I sent upon you now. Your squamous, vile hide choked me, and I spat you into the world. Good riddance, says I. <laughs> then... I curled into my nest for five and twenty winters, shitting explosively, or regurgitating a belly full of hapless lesser glade dwellers as I succumbed to a febrile dream of unlife. Neck wiped the heron spittle from his misshapen dome and waited for the trees to cease swaying and the roiled waters to calm. Aloysius, either eat us or fuck off back to your stump. Aloysius, god of herons, the terrible shadow that dwells on high, bloody Bill, and a hundred others, shifted his head side to side. I would, I would, dear slimy brute, yet I dare not. You are a piece of meat wriggling beneath my invidious talon. But you are also an aspect of dread and awful Jod, whom I'd rather not offend. His claws are long. His tongue is longer. As for the semi-mortal, she is human. Worse, she reeks of the White One's unlife taint, and it riles my gorge. Agatha ate the little shits like Turkish delight, green goddess helper. What does he mean, you're an aspect of Jode? Delia still bowed, spoke sotto voce to Neck. Neck said, The heron's fearful presence is a purgative of the subconscious. Memories return to me as of gaseous bubbles long suspended in mark rise to the surface of a lake. It sounds correct, although fog remains. 
I am diminished from a previous life. Greatly diminished. Hurrah, she said. Are you a toad dreaming you're a god, or the ass end around? Her demons hissed, whether in rage or delight, she couldn't tell. Nick, you gorgeous devil, all becomes clear. You've likely died a thousand deaths, only to reincarnate anew, albeit with your original form and vestigial memories. You exist as a broken mirror exists, each shattered shard reflecting within its frame of reference. Yet, an inviolate piece of the whole. We might yet quit this backwater oblivion. Oh, to what purpose? The king desires my head on a stick. You mean to collect the reward? The definition of untenable? Geld desires your head, Nelia said. Not I. Considering this revelation regarding your provenance, a bag of coin is insufficient. The residual damage of SDE is liable to be ongoing, which means you may persist as dual iteration simultaneously. Guard of Toads and Toad. The possibilities are quite staggering. She poked his chest. Someone well-versed in esoteric methods must watch over you to ascertain your body and soul remain integrated with corporeal reality. Oh, I kind of like it here, Nick said. It's peaceful. Perhaps. I'll rest a while. The god of herons clawed a gout of muddy water into the air. Forget it, Billy the Sack! Oh, murderous sucker of slugs! This is my domain. Your particular acre resides far from these shores, should you crave a return to that benighted realm. Go! Squat in primacy over garter snakes and tadpoles. Go in peace, or go in pieces. That's the best offer you'll receive today. Fine. How do you propose I effect my departure? So far as I can determine, the poison is a one-way trip. Soon the sanguine dream eater in your blood shall dissipate, the god of Heron said. The wound in your mind shall seal. Neither of you belong in this paradise. You shall be expelled from my domain, as a splinter is ultimately disgorged from its seat in flesh. Neck regarded Delia. Well, this is beyond my ken. She nodded. Our intrusion has deformed this reality. Time and space are out of joint. By all rights, we should rot for eternity, or be devoured by a lumbering denizen of the land. However, the god of the Everglade wishes us gone, so it shall come to pass. His will is irresistible in his domain. I would expect the earth to open beneath our feet and swallow us at any moment. Allow me to assist! The god of herons pecked at the shore with his executioner's bill. The ground crumbled and fell into a pit. You'd best be gone when I return. He fluffed his plumage and waded into deeper water before launching toward the sky. Delia and Neck exchanged glances. Since there was nothing for it but to do it, they descended. They rested at the bottom. A tunnel cored into the gloom. Above... The patch of hazy sky winked out like a blown candle, and they were sealed in pitch blackness. 
Delia gripped his elbow as they moved forward, blindly into the unknown. In a while, a guttural, wheezing cry echoed from the way they'd come. It sounded again. Closer. Something enormous must have uttered such a cry. Dare I ask? Nick said. Faster, she said. Lest you meet yourself on the road through purgatory, I am unprepared for that. His freedom to roam shall be curtailed in our material reality. We must survive to reach it. Haste, Toad. I've seen myself. Glorified in the hold of doom, he began moving again, dragging her along. Gerald would be sorely disappointed in what I have made of his legacy. Delia said nothing. One question. His raspy voice floated strangely in the dark. Speak it, Toad. Did we... really kiss? The sands of midnight had recently passed through the hourglass when Seneschal Geld strode into the royal bedchamber sans invitation. Tall and lean, he bowed, bending like a half-opened folding knife. His conical hat of office scraped the tiles. Your Majesty, pardon me. King Dick, sunk to his chin in an herbal bath, was not amused at the interruption. The king was seldom amused unless the activity related to something pleasurable, such as the complete destruction of one of his countless enemies or detractors. Why are you bothering me, Geld? Your expression of acute fear is troublesome. What has gone wrong? I do hope you've snipped all loose ends and nothing will come back to haunt us. Please be exceedingly concise as I have no wish to become acquainted with the details of your heinous undertakings. Heinous undertakings on your behalf, Seneschal Geld said. Indeed, you must truly be in the soup to speak with such temerity. The good news, sire, the loose ends are well ensnipped, as you say. The bad news, um, the help in this matter are rather disgruntled, if you take my meaning. Yes, I hear you've solicited the talents of a black magician, among other unsavory villains. Kudos on securing the magician. I thought John Foote and Julie V were the last of that ilk for another generation or two. Never mind. How does this concern me? Assassins threaten my person, Seneschal Geld said. He'd not seen a flat affect man prior to tonight. However, when a stoic had emerged from behind a colonnade, there could have been scant doubt as to its purpose or ability. The miscreants lurk within the palace itself as your loyal and trusted servants. It would stand to reason that my problems are inevitably your problems, sire. King Dick scooped soap into his hand and blew a bubble. Dear Geld, as of this moment your position is vacant. Hire thee into town and take lodgings wherever you deem fit. Wait for the Herald to announce a call for candidates. I'd say a ten-day at minimum, perhaps a fortnight. If your head rests upon your shoulders at such time, please be welcome to submit yourself with the other applicants. Sire, if you are not beheaded, Mr. Geld, or worse, my money's on something worse. Seneschal Geld didn't bother to plead his case. 
reeking Dick's favorite bodyguards waited outside the door and would cheerfully cleave the seneschal from stem to stern if their master so much as whistled. As you say, sire, he bowed again as protocol demanded and hastily departed for his own chambers to retrieve a satchel of personal items before making good his escape. A draft moaned in the corridors of power. Lamps were spaced at lonely intervals. Seneschal Geld bunched his robes in his hands and hustled, aware that some grim fate pursued him. Indeed, an ecstatic blocked the passage back. The Seneschal ducked into a doorway and fled through a series of unlighted antechambers. The palace was a honeycomb of levels piled upon levels that few had ever fully explored. It sprawled with disorienting grandeur, and he soon lost his way. No matter what door he opened, or what hall he traveled, a white one was there to shivy him along. Down short stairwells, then longer, narrower stairs connected by longer, narrower, less illuminated passages. First, dust. Then, moss and mold and dripping water, his stone roughened and cracked with antiquity. No matter that he broke into a trot, then a panicked gallop, a white one paced him with a queer, shuffling gait. Finally, he staggered, gasping and spent into a decrepit cathedral, lighted by a pair of iron braziers. The braziers seethed and shimmered with red coals. Broad flagstone steps descended to a shallow basin at the heart of the chamber. Ankle-deep water rippled, disturbed by the flow of a hidden spring. A scaly plinth, surmounted by a rusted iron hexagonal pyramid, rose from the center of the basin. The temple walls were formed of basalt. Weird red shadows crawled across the weirder stone and plaster effigies of neglected gods. The heron, the toad, the leech, the sleeper, the lord of the Black River, and the father mother. These figures towered within alcoves that nearly scraped the vaulted ceiling. There was no visible entrance beside the archway. A trio of white ones slouched at the threshold, content to observe Geld's escalating terror. They grinned and scowled, perfectly still, perfectly content. A dripping, squelching eructation caused the braziers to gutter. Geld turned even as the distended, lolling tongue of Jode drooled forth, its barbs scraping over stone. He sprang backward, but the reeking flesh coiled around him, its barbs pierced him, and he gasped in pleasure or agony, both of the same. He was drawn upward, kicking and squirming toward a monstrous bulk shed of its plaster shell. This isn't as grand as the Hall of Doom, Jode whispered in the Seneschal's mind, but it's a decent likeness. King Dick nibbled a fig. He sipped wine from a gem-encrusted goblet. He said, Well, I suppose that's the last anyone will ever hear of the pointy-headed bastard. Unfortunately, I'm down a seneschal. He was pretty effective, too. He absolutely terrified the staff. 
Nearby shadows dissolved at the merest hint of unearthly radiance to reveal Delia in repose upon a pile of silk cushions. She too munched on figs and enjoyed a lovely goblet of wine. Don't think of it as losing a seneschal. Think of it as gaining a court magician. And, um, whatever in the nineteen hells your friend is, the king said, an exquisitely dangerous pet. As you say. Meanwhile, the bath grows tepid. Perhaps you'd care to fetch that fluffy towel and dry off the royal fundament? His smirk faded as he noticed the water in his tub was rather inky. It stained the marble a deep, rich crimson. He wondered if he should call for his guards. He wondered if it would make a difference. The faint glow suffusing Delia's flesh drained into her eyes, and they briefly flared metallic purple. Then... Her eyes, too, dimmed and dimmed, and she sank into the shadows. Um, uh, to, to tell me more about our burgeoning friendship, the king said to make conversation. It isn't going to be anything like you imagine, she said. You've been listening to Ode to Jode the Toad by author Laird Barron. Well, that was different. <laughs> I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Horror Hill. Don't forget to tune in again next week, when I yet again regale you with a handful of tales to terrify, plumbed from the most depraved depths of the human imagination. Tonight's episode featured tales from the very talented Saren Narnia and Laird Baron. Lake was written by and brought to you courtesy of Saren Narnia. Saren is the author of and the creator of the acclaimed Knife Point Horror Podcast and the author of all of the tales featured on his program. He also writes audiobooks collected in the podcast, Those Snowy Nights You Read to Me, They'll Never Be Forgotten, and his collected works can be found on Amazon as well. When he's not writing, you'll find him wandering the cafes of Washington, D.C. For more information visit his official website at sarinarnia.com. Ode to Jode the Toad was written by and brought to you courtesy of Laird Barron. Laird was born in Alaska, where he raised huskies and worked in the construction and fishing industries for much of his youth. He is the author of several short story collections and several novels, including The Imago Sequence and Other Stories, Swift to Chase, and Blood Standard, and his work has also appeared in many magazines and anthologies. A multiple Locus, World Fantasy, and Bram Stoker Award nominee, he is also a three-time winner of the Shirley Jackson Award. Currently, Barron lives in the Rondout Valley of New York State and is at work on tales about the evil that men do. For more information, Visit his official blog at lairdbaron.wordpress.com. 
That's Laird, spelled L-A-I-R-D, Baron, B-A-R-R-O-N, dot WordPress, dot com. Or follow him on Facebook and Twitter to get his latest updates. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the horror hill for yet another dance with darkness. I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted, and its featured stories performed by, yours truly, Jason Hill. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Felipe Ojeda, Luke Hodgkinson, and Jesse Cornett. Final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshak. The program's artwork by yours truly, Jason Hill. Logo by Craig Groshak. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for Chilling Tales for Dark Nights as well. 
to get more spooky tales from me and the crew, and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing, and leave a kind word. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.